and over 10 million people saw my post and went viral. And uh, U.S. News and World Report did a story on it. And for 15 minutes, I was the most famous woman in the Midwest for being unemployed. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Fi Show. Today, we're going to have Jennifer Magley, a former professional athlete, coach, and current motivational speaker. But before we kind of tease the episode, let's check in with the co-host, Cody. What's going on, man? Well, I actually had a pretty cool first this past weekend. So on Saturday, there was this, and this sounds super fancy, there was this yacht cruise thing that I went on. So basically, long story short, my friend's friend's dad owns this yacht and he basically hosts huge parties on it. It's 35 bucks. We got to go around. They had food. They had drinks on the yacht. It was amazing, dude. Like it was during sunset and it was just right out of Boston Harbor at the Rose Wharf and it was about three hours long in total and totally would do it again. It was one of the most awesome firsts that I've had in terms of like experiences and parties, especially somewhere that's so close. I'd never heard about it before. Then kind of the rest of the week and weekend, it's been raining like absolute crazy. I know you've been over in California, but man, literally every single day has been rain, whether it's raining all day, there's been thunderstorms, there's been rain for half the day. It's relentless. There's like flooding and we had like three inches of water in the basement, whole bunch of different stuff. I'm hoping that it slows down a bit soon. But Justin, what's going on in your life, man? Well, definitely jealous of that yacht cruise. That sounds like a great value. Not jealous of that weather, though. Like you said, I am out in California been spending some time with some friends in LA and now I'm in Santa Monica and um, the weather's just been crazy consistent like it's the weirdest thing to me I've lived a lot of different places but it'll be 72 then 73 72 73 with the lows being like 64 64 no rain sun all day like it is just the most consistent perfect weather I've ever seen so I totally understand why people come out here but I will say I'm also noticing uh you know, those price increases on everything, just your normal groceries, all the extra taxes that are on every bill that you get. So um, definitely eat into your paycheck. But it's been a lot of fun getting to see some friends in a very efficient way. We're just staying with them, working during the day, getting to hang out at night, check out the beach, relax. So it, overall, it's been a great trip. But that's enough about us. Let's take a quick moment for our partner. Keeping track of your net worth is one of the most important things you can do on your journey to financial independence. If you don't have an idea of what your net worth is, there's no way that you can keep your quote unquote score. One of our favorite tools to keep this score is called Personal Capital. If you haven't already started using it, it's an online software that basically compiles all of your data, it crunches all your assets, all your liabilities, and spits out a net worth number and allows you to track it day by day, month by month. Yeah, Cody, one of the big things that hold people back when they're doing activities like tracking their expenses or tracking their net worth is just they look at it as a big burden. And this allows you to go in with one username and one password and access as many financial accounts as you have. These can be loans, these can be 401ks, these can be HSAs, bank accounts, credit cards. They're all linked there. The other thing I really like about personal capital is it's very investing focused. So you can go in there and look at your allocation across your entire portfolio. So you don't just look at your allocation in one type of account, but your allocation as a person completely. And if you want to use the same tool that me and Cody use to track our net worth, which is completely free, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash PC. That's thefyshow.com slash PC. Alrighty. So like Justin mentioned at the beginning, we have Jennifer Magley on today. She was a former professional tennis player, a D1 NCAA tennis coach, motivational speaker, amazing episode where we cover networking, connection, 
We talk about habit forming and competitive edge from the mind of an athlete like Jennifer. We talk about resiliency. We talk about, you know, what happens and how do you prepare for if you're going to lose your job and a whole lot more in this episode. And if while you're listening to the show, you want to go and check out any of the links or notes, you can do that at thefyshow.com slash Jennifer. That's thefyshow.com slash J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R. And with that, let's welcome Jennifer to the show. I wasn't trained to connect with people. I was trained to compete. And ideally, not just to compete, but to dominate. And that doesn't necessarily translate into uh, the real world or the social world the way that you'd think. So that was, you know, racing to press the down button on an elevator is not going to win you any friends at work. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when they don't know you're racing. That's a problem. So yeah, my upbringing, it just really was all about competition and frankly, achievement. You know, that was a big deal. And I know for a lot of athletes, it starts like really young, like this very intense training around the clock, around the calendar year. What kind of age and what kind of time commitments did, you know, when did it start really ramping up? It didn't occur to me until recently that I might have a little bit of OCD. And the way that 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 looks in sports is something about uh, having a unique drive, right? So when I was born, the first thing my father said to me was, can you say Wimbledon? which was like, no lie. That was exactly what he said. Never quite made it there, but it was everything, you know, was around giving your best effort. It wasn't about the birthday parties or the birthday cake. It was about, okay, can I get another tournament in this weekend and and how can we do? So it was, you know, that was my childhood was being on the, the tennis court, essentially. I mean, my mom helped balance that with dancing and all the other things that we did with theater, but it really was about achievement. It was all about achievement, not a lot of balance, a lot of blending. Your dad was an NBA basketball player though, right? And you ended up yeah tennis, how? Yeah, you know, I'd talk so much when he used to take me to the courts, uh, to the park, basketball, to play basketball there and just wouldn't stop talking. So he gave me an old racket and some balls and said, go over there and hit on the wall. Come back when you got 10. And that's how I started was hitting on a wall by myself, just entertaining myself. Little did I know It would take me so far. And what's a little peek behind the curtain for, you know, a young person getting into competitive tennis? You know, I know the you have like the AAU basketball team, travel teams, a lot of travel baseball. What's it like in the tennis realm? Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, a lot of people ask me, oh, should I put my daughter in tennis? And I say, yeah, only if you want to spend all your money. I mean, that's just (laughs) the fact of the matter. Tennis is the only sport where money changes hands, tennis and golf. So anytime, you know, little um, Jill doesn't like her tennis coach when she's five, she can fire him or fire her. And so it's a different kind of sport. You know, every other sport, you're trying to impress the coach. Uh, In tennis, you're really trying to pick the best coach. It's all about about the best. So, So I would say to somebody who has that question, consider volleyball. (laughs) (laughs) it's a great sport you know you can't beat the uniforms it's still a team sport some overhead motion just like tennis but i'd say hey check volleyball out and i've heard you i don't remember what podcast it was but i did my research and i listened to a bunch you said you had to learn how to be likable and you know for those people who do struggle with that they don't have to be a competitive athlete because i'm guessing that's a really small subset of our listeners but i'm sure there are people that struggle to make friends to be likable to connect with people What were those things you actually did to, you know, become a more likable person? You know, it's funny. I think that a lot of people think that likability is like being pretty. 
like you're just born with it, right? You know, you just you just came into this world and everyone adored you. And yeah, there are some people that are high eye, as they call them, that are in everyone's weddings. But I actually believe that likability is a skill. And when we approach it as a skill, then we realize it's something that we can develop. So for me, I did that by getting out of my comfort zone and getting into direct sales. And I actually learned a lot of different techniques like warm chatter, or cold chatter, and really how to soft close people. So with guys, for example, guys always got me. I grew up training with guys, you know, you shove, I shove harder. And then afterwards we go get a root beer because we're underage. (laughs) (laughs) But with with women um, and and learning to become likable and and that way I had to read a lot of books and then I began uh, to ask questions. So if you want to be likable, the best way to do it is to learn how to ask a lot of questions and step outside of your comfort zone. And you just mentioned kind of a profession other than professional tennis. What is that like when you kind of realize maybe you're wrapping up your professional career as a tennis player, as an athlete, and you're going to start looking into something that doesn't involve tennis? Yeah, it's the worst. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it is like being like a child star that never really quite made it. And then the rest of your life, you're watching your your little uh, peers succeed. You know, I have memories of being in my 20s and feeling like the ultimate failure. I'm walking into like a outlet, Nike outlet, and I see a girl who's on the on the wall, you know, that has her like own shoe now. And I can't even afford, you know, the shoe on the rack. That's like 20% off. And of course, it's in the men's section because I got such big feet. But it's just, it really is the worst transitioning from a lifelong dream to who you are today. I'll put it to you like this. I will have to live like Ah, geez, 20, 22 more years. And then I'll finally be at the point of I've not played tennis for as long as I played tennis. So that's how long it's going to take to have some more life experiences that weren't on the court. So you're ragging on tennis a bit. You're like, you know, I'm not likable. I'm so competitive. I'm never going to have the same amount of pleasure from my day job as I will in professional tennis. But it can't be all bad. Like, I'm sure there's some valuable things, lessons, skills that you learn, like playing professional sports. I mean, things that come to mind, you say competition might be a bad thing, but it could be a great thing in sales or like habit forming, for example. Some people suck at, you know, exercising, eating right, just because they haven't, the they haven't like gone through that routine of like doing something that, you know, it might suck every single day, but if you keep doing it over and over again, you're going to have a positive result. So I, I'm kind of curious to hear the other side. You've been ragging on tennis a bit. What are some of the positive <laughs> things you learned? You know, I'm ragging on tennis because tennis has been <laughs> ragging on me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess some, some, there's a lot of positives. And, you know, I, I jokingly say don't don't put your kid in tennis unless you want to spend all your money. But that's based with the baseline that you want to be number one in the world and that you believe you can be number one in the world. So that's already you're already crazy from the first point. But if you're thinking, gosh, I want to put my daughter or my son in something, I mean, then you're going to say 80% of the CEOs that are women, they're former student athletes. And there's a reason because of that. It's because it does require a unique kind of commitment. I think it does have a lot of discipline comes from it, but I also think you can get that from other things too. So I think a lot of times we glorify sports for being so special because we see what people are doing, but we don't always see that Juilliard, you know, trained musician, or we don't see the best teacher in the world, and they're not getting recognized. So I I actually think that sometimes with sports, we kind of overvalue 
what it takes to be great because it's actually physically painful. One thing I was wondering about as I was reading your backstory and reading all the places you've been throughout your life is the coaching aspect. Like when you become, you know, the youngest division one head coach, because I think about somebody like Bill Belichick, right? All these right. coaches who are like awesome coaches, but they weren't notable athletes, probably not even good <laughs> athletes. And sometimes these amazing athletes struggle to coach others because yes. they, it's like they, it's like they want to just jump in the other person's body and do it for them, but they can't. They got to learn to coach. So what was that like for you coaching at Florida Gulf Coats, which, by the way, looks like you were there during the Dunk City rain? Oh, yeah, I was. I used to I used to come out of the locker room um, because our, that's where our balls were and all the press was there. And every day I would hear a collective. Oh, they would, I would like just you, just the tennis women's <laughs> tennis coach. And I was like, don't worry, guys, I'm not excited about me either. <laughs> um, but yeah, coaching was challenging for me because just like you said, Justin, so many things that I thought would be obvious for the level. You know, I was I was number one in college tennis, which is like an achievement. I didn't see it as an achievement at the time. I thought it was like number one failure for not being on the tour. You know, it's like the best of the worst in my head at that time. But uh, coaching was challenging. And for me, love was a lot of discipline and pushing, you know, because that's how I received love. And my dad is hysterical. My parents are so funny. And, you know, on the scale of tennis parents, they're the best you could hope for. But I will say that when when you've got a, young, a group of young women and that's your love language is discipline in college, probably not their love language. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I learned, okay, like you got to make people know that you care about them. You know, you've got to connect with them. So that was something that that I think that's part of why a lot of athletes aren't great coaches is because they are still competing in their own heads and they're still defining themselves by wins and losses. So it's, it takes somebody who can connect, like you say, like Belichick, all these coaches, they're, they're connecting with their players. They're not competing with them because they're like, Hey, you know, I can't win a race, but let's help you get there. So I have a lot of respect for people that didn't play the game or any sport and they figure it out. I think that's pretty awesome. So speaking of greatness, you just talked about, you know, someone who's an athlete might not be the best of coaches, but you have trained with some people who have just been like at the top, top. I think the names I remember was it Maria Sharapova and like Derek yeah. Jeter or something. Yeah. You know, what are the, what are the threads, the common threads that you're seeing amongst people that are playing at that level? You know, I would say, and, and this is not going to be a popular thing, but I, I would say that you have got to be completely selfish. I mean, it's got to be all about you 24-7, and your main focus is what helps me get to the next level, and where am I going to be at the end of the day? How was I better than yesterday? And that actually comes through when you talk to a lot of athletes, you know, off the court. They're like, how can I get there? Especially when they're on the grind in the beginning. Now, once they, you know, have bought a couple schools and they're, I got an HBO special <laughs> and they're getting their, and they're getting their little haircut that may or may not be there. You know, I think, <laughs> I think that it's a little different now than it used to be. There's a lot more giving back. There's more branding. I mean, back when I was next to Mike, you know, Michael Johnson, he was the fastest man on earth on a stationary bike there was no social media so back then everybody could just really focus on themselves whereas now 
a part of your brand has to be that you're philanthropic and you give back and you are on TikTok and you can dance and you're funny. So I think it's a little different, but the core thread that still connects them is they're incredibly selfish when it comes to advancing. Does this same lesson stand true in other facets of life outside? Like when you're talking to people, coaching people, do you recommend that same mentality? Like when it's, whether it's wealth, wealth accumulation, like fitness, just outside of professional sports where you're like your main goal is to beat other people. Do you think that same selfishness applies for greatness? So what I have found is I'm a big fan of the immunity map. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but Mm -mm. these Harvard professors did a, uh, looked at a study where these doctors looked at their heart patients and they told a hundred heart patients, if you don't change the way you live, you're going to die in the next two years. They circled back and it was only one in 14 that changed the way they lived a year later faced with death. So these professors thought, gosh, what is this immunity to changing? And so they created this thing called the immunity map. So Cody, what I believe is that most people have one foot on the gas and they're going as hard as they can. And they're like, let's do this. But they also have one foot on the brake. And they are, it's a little more than subconscious. They are completely committed to something that is competing with what they say that they want. So most people say they want to be excellent. They say they want to lose weight. They say they want to make a lot of money. But there is one thing that they're more committed to that keeps them spinning out and going around and doing donuts in a circle. So that's what I really believe with most people. It's not that they are necessarily committed to um, competition or that they don't have drive. It's that they're actually more committed to something else. And when you started going into other disciplines, other jobs in life, did you find it easy to, you know, find that same discipline and drive in the other things you went to? Was it just something like, okay, I've, I've figured out how to zone in now and I can do it in other ways? Or was it a lot harder when it wasn't tennis and it was sales or whatever it might be? I found that it's easier when I'm an entrepreneur. It's harder when I'm an employee. So I didn't know that there was such a thing that you could be mediocre and still get paid twice a month. I couldn't believe (laughs) that you could just do only one job. So when I got, yeah, right, when I got (laughs) a job, (laughs) I walked around and I had this really incredible, sexy job with a global sport entertainment agency last January, like January 2020. And they flew me to New York. I presented to a billionaire and I thought, gosh, I'm living the life. You know, when I went around, they're like, oh, I asked people, what do you do? They're like marketing. I'm like, what else? And they go, no, no, just marketing. I'm like, what? I said, what do you do? Social media. I'm like, and what? And they're like, just social media. So it blew my mind, you know, that people could only do one thing and, and just show up and still get paid. Because as an entrepreneur, you're back on that grind, you know, just like with Sunitha, you know, she, you guys had her on the show, former pro athlete. She has a full-time job, but she's still grinding because it's hard for a lot of us to turn it off. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And she's definitely that way. I'm just thinking, I was talking to her earlier today, actually. And like we mentioned in the beginning, she was the one who recommended you. And she's like, you got to have her on. Like she is, she's just like me. We we had the same drive. I actually want to pull a quote that I read. You said, I'm unstoppable when I know what I want and why. My question is, how do you find out what? you want? Like, how do you actually find that thing to be unstoppable toward? Because you just kind of talked about this relentless drive, this relentless energy that you have. But how do you kind of know where to guide that energy? Because for all we know, it could be in the complete wrong direction. Totally. So I kind of have a few fundamental beliefs. um, And they're a little cliche, but I do believe like what's for you will be for you. And I also 
try to to put this one mantra, we'll call it, into action, which which is there are no wrong decisions. So if I believe that everything's working for me, there are no wrong decisions. The last thing that I need to remember is, gosh, I'm never going to be 100% certain about anything. The coolest thing about sports is that every athlete's going to tell you they're essentially self-made. They had great coaches, but a parent put them in that sport. Let's be real. You know, a parent put that racket or the sneakers or a ball into their hands and said, let's go. And they had some way of being consistent. Choosing what you want to do post sports is hard because you own that decision. So I would say that if you don't know what to be passionate about, 30% is good enough because you're not going to be 100% certain about hardly anything. I mean, did you even know what you want to eat for breakfast? Like it's it's so <laughs> uncommon and we all stress out, right? Because we're like, I should be farther along and we compare ourselves to the way, you know, where we thought we'd be or I should be more passionate about my work. No, maybe sometimes work is just work and that's your side hustle to do something that you enjoy more of. So I'm one of those people that believes in just doing something that you enjoy and it doesn't have to be your lifelong pursuit, kind of taking some pressure off of that decision. And the other half of that quote was talking about why, you know, you just talked about what you wanted, but why you want it. And to me, that seems like that'd be a great connector for figuring out how to make sure you get that foot off the brake, as you mentioned earlier, and you're only on the gas when you dig into that root of why. Do you have any kind of thoughts around that and how important it is to figure out truly what your why is? Yeah, I do. I, I think that your why has to be, you know, ever present in the forefront of your mind, because when you do discover what's holding you back, you have to continue to face it until you beat it. It's not like, oh, I know, and now I'm over it. So for example, you know, I want to be successful and financially just bawling, right? I want to be abundant. That's foot on the gas. For me, foot on the brake was, I also am committed to being an incredible mother. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means in my mind, the way I was raised being an incredible mother, I'm a stay-at-home mom. So wait, how can I be a stay-at-home mom who's also a single mom and be baller and abundant? Something's got to give. So when you realize that your definition of what's stopping you is not true, when that's a faulty assumption, then the next time you have those thoughts, for example, the mother that's listening to this or the father that has the guilt of, oh, I got to drop my kid off at daycare, then you're going to think, oh, wait, that's my, that's my competing commitment. And then you continue to take your foot off the gas because it is a habit. You get on a loop. So that's that's how I see it is keeping your, your why, number one, and then following up on taking my foot up the gas and realizing, you know, when do I have my foot on that brake? And do you go and physically like write these commitments down and maybe rank them when you're trying to drop something like that? Because I know so many people who are in that boat that I don't have any time. Like I can't reach these goals because X, Y, and Z. I don't right. know which one to drop. And, and, you know, it can be a really tough decision. Like, it's really hard to step back and kind of look at your life from a 10,000 foot view. Yeah, I did this. I did the immunity map with an executive coach. It changed everything. I mean, changed my job, changed my partner at the time, changed even where I live. It was like a pivotal thing. And that's why I love doing it with my clients that I work with that are high performance. So the immunity map, it takes about two sessions. But if someone's thinking to themselves, I just need a breakthrough. I don't need like therapy. I don't need necessarily ongoing coaching. Then the immunity map is kind of that awesome one-two punch that you're like, oh, oh, got it. A lot of these things we've been talking about now are kind of 
our mindset, what we can control, what we can do. But obviously there's things that we run into in life that we, we can't control. And I know you've got a lot of passion around the gender equity and your book, Division One. It talks about, you know, things that affect female college athletes. One thing we love about this podcast, we get to interview other people and learn from them ourselves. We hope the listeners also get something out of it. And so I'm selfishly want to ask you if you could kind of educate me and Cody, right? We're, we're just two dudes. We probably are not right. the, the local. <laughs> we're probably not the resident experts on gender equity or maybe some of the things that impact female athletes more than male athletes. So I think it'd just be a good opportunity to kind of highlight some of those things and for everybody to learn something. Yeah, you know, I uh, I don't know the most recent stats, but I do know that I live in the second worst state for pay equity, and that is Indiana in the country. So it's something like for every dollar that my father makes, for every dollar that my husband makes, they're both white men, cute. <laughs> they're both <laughs> Q-W-H-I-T-E. I call them white <laughs> For every dollar a white man makes, <laughs> you know, a woman is making something around 79. And then, you know, a woman of color is making, I think it was around like 54 cents. That might be the national average. So it's it's literally one of those things where, you know, when I was a single independent mom, based on the stats, I'd have to work three jobs just to make ends meet. And so that's kind of um, where when you when you stop and you look at, America, and you stop and you look at the system, you realize that it actually is a system. So how do you overcome a race where the starting line is not the same and the finish line is different and there's obstacles in the way? I believe one of the ways we do that, kind of bringing it back to the beginning, is connection. So by connecting with other people, you know, it's not networking, it's actually creating your network. So when you deepen your actual network, that's when you can have that five fingers coming together to create a fist, to have your own way of working within a system. So you're, you're able to create your own system within the system, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And that's why the ability to connect is so important. I'm bringing it all the way around. Look at that from to the circle. beginning. <laughs> <laughs> How did you actually start networking, though? Like once you got out of professional tennis, like were you just hitting people up on like LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter? Like, hey, let's connect. You're like minded person. So back when I was coaching, I had a life change and I was kind of down I, when I was coaching um, tennis at the at FGCU. And I saw this woman at getting her nails done. And I looked out in the parking lot and she was driving a pink Cadillac. And I was like, wait a minute, she's either a pimp or <laughs> this little tiny blonde woman or she's with Mary Kay. I need to know because who rolls around? in a pink Cadillac. So I went up to her and I said, what is the deal? You know, basically, is your badassery contagious, which is something I've said before. <laughs> and from there, I had the opportunity and I, I just jumped full in and became a beauty consultant, which was like, I had never even worn makeup. I had never like nothing. I never put makeup on dolls growing up. But I got to a point where I could sell around $3,000 worth of mascara in an hour. And that's because they taught me how to be likable. So that's what taught me how to connect with people and have those soft skills to get them to open up and connect deeper with you within just a few seconds. I mean, standing in line, how can you open them up that quickly so that they feel comfortable enough to open their home to you and their friend network? That's the kind of training I received. Yeah, and I think what you just talked about there is this great example of 
sometimes you can't just tell somebody, hey, this is exactly when you're going to have the opportunity to make a connection that's going to benefit you, you know, whether it be professionally, monetarily, or just like from a relationship. But you got to be ready for it. You got to be like, hey, you know, when I see an opportunity, like when you see that pink Cadillac in the parking lot, that you're going to go up and speak to them. When you hear somebody talking about, you know, a business opportunity, you go up and speak to them. Because uh, I think a lot of people just see these opportunities kind of walk in front of them. And they have it mentally prepared that they're, you know, they're going to be willing to jump in and make that connection. Yeah. People love to talk about themselves. You you guys are on this podcast. You know it. Like people are so happy to say yes and, and come and talk about themselves. So what I try to do is provide that opportunity for other people. And that's there's wonderful books out there that that help with that. I'm a big believer in scripts and, and having questions already. So, for example, what's it like to be you today? That's a question you probably never get asked, right? No, or, correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd be in line with you. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm burnt out. So Cody, we're in line. It's outside. We're waiting on a concert. I see your sweat and we both kind of laugh. It's awkward. What am I going to say to open things up? I'll be like, yeah, pretty hot out here. What's it like to be you today? And you're going to be like, uh, yeah, you're going to, and, and then you're going to start talking. You're going to laugh and then you're going to immediately open up. Another book that's great with these kinds of concepts is Chris Voss wrote a book. He's a former FBI hostage negotiator. It's called Never Split the Difference. It's incredible. I highly recommend that book. A More Beautiful Question, Warren Berger. There's a lot that are out there. If people are like, how do I, how do I get this going? Those are great places to start. So I guess I want to preface my next question with just a quick yes or no question. Are you a preparer? Ooh, it's yes. Okay, the reason I asked that, and I heard this in another interview you did, why do you think Lil Wayne is so successful in the booth, if that was the answer to that question I just asked? (laughs) Because he's sipping on a syrup. (laughs) (laughs) He's out of his mind. There we go. (laughs) I mean, if I was, if I got to stay ready, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. So maybe that's why he can freestyle is because he's got performances enhanced. Yeah. You know, I think you've got to be prepared, but being prepared allows you to freestyle. You know, you're able to just go with the flow and not be so stringent. You know, as a person who has undiagnosed OCD, like very mild, I would say find a lot of comfort and routine. And I can't let my routine become my God, you know, because literally like I got to do my routine, got to get my tube socks. You know, if you've seen <laughs> Rain Man, got to get my tube socks, got to get my tube Or the accountant, I'm like, I got to finish, I got to finish. That's me. So when I say, okay, like stop the madness, just relax and go with the flow, it always helps. This is kind of changing subjects a little bit, changing directions a little bit. But a lot of this, when you're getting ready for tennis, a lot of your career, it's got to be very you focused. It's got to be very you're driving yourself. And I know you talked about like, okay, how to make connections and how to be nice to people. But that seemed like that's more from a way to be professional and to make friends. But then at some point, it looks like you also start getting really passionate about giving back like community work, fundraising. Where did that come from? And or was that always there? I always had the intention to serve and and give back. And I think that the ability to raise money, the ability to sell out an event, or to even, you know, get everybody to come to your birthday party, they all have one thing in common, and that's mobilizing people. If you can mobilize someone to do something, then that's where you're powerful. The whole intention of connecting with them, whether it's to sell your product or to get them to buy into even investing in themselves, has to do with 
mobilizing them, not controlling their behavior, not even necessarily persuading their behavior, but getting them to the point that it's their idea. So I used to try and do experiments. For example, when I, I did a one great experiment, which was I became a server for six months. And I used to do all kinds of crazy things, like see if I could get people to order particular things on the menu, just like, okay, am I, can I, what language do I have to use to be able to do that? So I think those kinds of skills applied with the intention of community are, is really where you see a lot of people that have a lot of success in that area. And you think, oh gosh, they're so dynamic, but it's not that they're dynamic. It's that they're intentional. I think they're just very intentional. I hope to be considered one of those people. I also enjoy deflecting, as you can see. <laughs> one of my favorite hobbies, deflection. Deflection. <laughs> deflection. Is that a tennis move? Gosh, probably, yeah, avoiding conflict on line calls. Yeah, that's probably. So you kind of went on a string of different entrepreneurial activities. I, I feel like we haven't even dove into anything <laughs> career-wise. It's been mostly mindset, which I wanted to talk to you about a ton. But, you know, what were what were some of those early ventures? I know we just mentioned that the beauty consultant, but um, you had a lot of them as I looked through your resume. So, yes, I was a, a beauty consultant. It was a home-based business for a number of years. Then I owned a business where you could go to 40 different gyms. It was kind of like ClassPass. Have you ever heard of ClassPass? Mm -hmm. It was similar to that for my state. And I had a, a lot of success with that. It was a lot of fun and ended up having partnerships that I was proud of. One most notably was with the Indianapolis Colts. And it's pretty cool seeing your logo up the big screen and having seats on the field. I felt so bossy and large and in charge. And then... You know, I was involved with a lot of nonprofits and raised money with different ideas and ventures. So I've had a career where sales and grit have been the number one thing. You know, it's just like, okay, how do you, how, 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 you know, what does it take? That's, that's the thing I've always been fascinated with. So your life between being, you know, an athlete, professional athlete and an entrepreneur, those are actually two things that are obviously not common on the professional athlete standpoint, but on the entrepreneur side as well, like most people aren't entrepreneurs. And when you think about your kids, do you think you will try to direct them one way or the other? I mean, obviously it's, like I said, it's more common to not be an entrepreneur. Now with your experience doing it and with the sports, like how do you manage that with the way you think you'll push your kids? Yeah, you know, every day before they get out of the car or going to school, they say, I'm a great man of fortune, faith, gratitude, and joy. And they have all these other things they say. And I won't know, you know, until like 20, 30 years from now, if they're going to love that or hate me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if that was a good thing to do or not. And I just would encourage them, you know, either way. I, I think that as a person who has had their own business and then done a reverse leap back into being an employee during the pandemic or right before the pandemic, I would just say that there's no stability in either. The trick is that we believe that we're so stable with our job until you get laid off, you know, until you get fired, until you get that email at nine o'clock p.m. again, you know, when you've said, please don't email me. So I think that it's one of those things that we have told ourselves a lie, and that is having a job is stability. And it's not. I mean, I, I, that, that job I told you about earlier, what was the sexy job I'm presenting and doing all those glossy things. And 84 days later, I'm laid off. I don't know if you heard about this, but I posted on LinkedIn and over 10 million people saw my post and went viral. 
And uh, U.S. News and World Report did a story on it. And for 15 minutes, I was the most famous woman in the Midwest for being unemployed, (laughs) (laughs) which was not on my goal list. (laughs) So, you know, the fortunate thing about it was that I, I was able to get a new job from that post. But more importantly, I was able to connect with people and they shared their incredible stories too. So it's it's one of those things where I tell my kids like, hey, you might you might have it all, but blink that eye and everything could be gone either way, whether you are an entrepreneur or your employee. But if you never made that LinkedIn post, which I saw in the support was just incredible. I mean, there were yeah. thousands of comments and you said like millions of people that saw it. But if you never made that post in the first place and you weren't so raw and exposed, like you were being so real about how it felt and you... You felt you were in this awesome, stable job and then kind of just the rug got swept out from under you in the middle of the night. And now you, I don't even know how many job offers you got from that, but probably quite a few. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to throw up after I posted it. I was just like, (laughs) I felt like one of the Simpsons characters, you know, when they, when they're, when they're ill or had too much beer or something. But yeah, I just felt absolutely sick. And that kind of transparency is really hard especially when you're selling yourself as being this person who has the answers or is here to support you in finding the answer. I think it's hard to say, you know what? I'm broke, guys. And uh, this is pretty busted. Because I'll tell you this, if you've got a huge network of people, you know, I have like maybe 11,000 connections now on LinkedIn. It's still a weak network if you don't share your need. If you don't ask your network to do anything, ask them to connect you per, you know, and, and personal messages, ask them to support you or recommend you or keep you top of mind. What's the point of having all these connections? So I think that, you know, we're always, we have a stigma in our country, which is it's better to give than to receive. But I believe that in the law of reciprocity, that when you open your hand to give, your hand is also open to receive. And there is an honor in receiving. There is an honor in asking and someone meeting your needs. So I just think we got to shake that stigma off of that receiving is bad because receiving is not taking. There's a difference. Is there any tips out there? Like, you know, maybe we got somebody listening who is on that job hunt. They're going through LinkedIn. It's obviously, you know, like you said, you got 11,000 connections. You're not, it's not feasible that you're going to be having daily conversations with all these people. So it's probably going to feel a little bit like a cold call, even if you do know the person to some degree. I don't know if you have any tips for people who are in that stage that are trying to reach out to their network. Definitely. I, there's some statistic out there that says around 80% of jobs are found through secondary connections. So that secondary connection, that friend of a friend on LinkedIn, that's going to be where you're going to find your job. So a, a script that I would consider using is, you know, like, hi, Cody, saw that you're doing great things on your podcast. This might be a little weird because we've never met. So you can go ahead and acknowledge that this is awkward for me, or you could say this is awkward for me, but I've, you know, I have a a seven-year-old son and a nine-year-old just lost my job. I'm looking for an opportunity in the area of fill in the blank. And then here's the close and the call to action. Able to keep me top of mind, should you hear about an opportunity? So that soft close of able to keep me top of mind is what's going to get your foot in the door. So I love that for, you know, getting a job and kind of connections that you don't really know. I'm curious because you're all about kind of keeping those connections and fostering those connections. Do you have like a reach out strategy or like, you know, 50, a 50 person list that you're 
every six months, maybe you check in with an email or a phone call or something like that. And I don't know if it's in an organized fashion or you're just kind of, you know, randomly hitting some subset of people up that you keep in your head. Yeah, that's a great idea, Cody. I should do that. (laughs) Uh, What I usually do is feed the feed. Like it's probably not the thing that I should be doing, but whatever comes up on my feed, I try to engage with certain people and then uh, check in with them. But, you know, it's easy for me because I create events. Mm. I create events in town for people to come to, specifically women. I've got a power lunch and it grew to over a thousand women in like three months before the pandemic. And here's the premise of Power Lunch. There's no agenda. There's no speaker. Reserve your ticket. Come buy your own lunch. Have lunch with a woman you don't know. You wouldn't believe how many women come because everyone's sick of this nonsense, fake way of networking. You know, it's like, why do we need to have all this structure? Just let people talk. That's what they really want to do is talk to each other. So invitations are the the way that I get past gatekeepers. I mean, once... Any celebrity that you want to get in touch with, invite them to something. You're going to get a response. Uh, Everybody just wants to be invited. They're not going to come. And you want them to keep (laughs) rejecting you. The more they reject you, the more they're going to say yes in the future. You know, go to Bilichak. It's like that team's not going to win the more they they lose to the teams they always beat, right? So it's the same thing in sales. Like, you're not always going to tell me no. Statistically, it's impossible. So I'm just going to keep inviting you to things. (laughs) That's so savage, right? But it's true. It's true. Yeah, a lot of that's true. I mean, like, even when you're talking about, I'm going through my head, when I go to conferences half the time, I just wish that the speaker wasn't up there so that I could quit just whispering to the people in my aisle that I'm trying to catch up with and I could actually just talk to them because that's really why I came to the conference in the first place was to talk to all the, you know, do all the networking in person and see everyone. And it's not really so much about who the speaker is on the stage. No. And you want to know what I do? I'll take it one step crazier with the networking and stuff. I will look at the list of who's going to the conference beforehand and I'll pick out five people I want to connect with. So there might be 2,000 people at this conference. Awesome. I'm only here to meet these five specific (laughs) people. The rest of them, nice to meet you. And by the way, like I have an understanding with my closer friends that if we see each other out at events, we're not there to chit chat because we're already deep. We're there to meet other people. And we know that, you know, if we're already deep enough, it's like, hey, okay, I'm here, I'm doing my thing, and we have that understanding. So it's it's a different way of networking, if that makes sense. Absolutely. We've been talking and, you know, people listening are probably like, Jennifer is so go, 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 hardcore, entrepreneur, professional athlete. But I've heard that you use meditation quite frequently as like a, whether it's to clear your head or find direction. I'd kind of love to hear how that has played into your life, whether it was in sports or maybe later in your more entrepreneurial corporate life. Yeah. So I heard a great story from a yogi here in town. I do not (laughs) practice yoga regularly anymore, but I used to be like in the know when I had open gym. And it's such an interesting story. He he told one of his students, a, a man, he said, go and meditate for an hour. So he goes away and, and he's, he's trying to meditate, but it was really hard for him. And he wanted to complain. So he came back to the yoga instructor, the, the yogi, and he said, gosh, this was terrible. Like, why did you tell me to go meditate for an hour? And he says, really, tell me more about that. He goes, well, my mind just kept constantly racing and I just couldn't stop thinking about this and that. And it was just driving me crazy. And the yogi says, congratulations. Now you know what it's like to be around you for an hour. <laughs> so that is the opener for meditation. You know, it's it's hard. It's hard to quiet the mind. It's hard to listen. You know, I'm a person who believes in in faith, 
And it's an interesting thing to realize, you know, that your whole life, what you thought was being spiritually connected was just really you talking and never listening. So in my mind, I feel that becoming quiet and listening is an opportunity just to see what comes to you. And it is shocking. It's kind of shocking to see that kind of solutions, answers, or thoughts that are just your own mind will reveal to you. Yeah, I definitely can uh, empathize with the the guy in the story because I struggle keeping, you know, to me, the hardest thing in the world to do is just to do absolutely nothing from from a mental perspective. I mean, yeah, I can sit on the couch, but to actually sit in quiet, no phone, no TV, no music, no nothing for even five minutes, it just kind of feels awkward and crazy. So it's something I, I should work on. Oh, no. You know what? It's it's something that I realized back when I was a single person. I was like, you know, if these guys don't want to be with me for an hour over dinner, tough luck because I got to be around me all the time. <laughs> 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 so it is an interesting thing to spend time with oneself, as we'll say. Yeah. <laughs> The last thing I was going to ask about is we haven't talked too much about about your books. And I know your most recent book is How to Be Queen, A Leadership Fable. And it's interesting because it's actually, you know, a fiction book. And we haven't even talked about how where you get inspiration from and all that sort of things that that go with being a fiction book versus just doing research and talking about what you've seen that works. So could you talk a little bit about how the book came together and maybe who that target is? Like, who's the perfect person to read this book? Yeah, I believe that people remember in stories, you know, they're going to remember more than if if I wrote like a 300 page listicle, which is out there right now. Most books are step one and do this and it works for me. I just haven't found that to be true. So I believe this book is for anyone who feels that the finish line keeps moving. If you just feel like, gosh, no matter what I do, I, I never seem to get to where I need to be in my career then this, you know, short 30-minute book is ideal for you. I rewrote The Tortoise and the Hare to talk about self-leadership. So it's designed to be read over a lunch break. Really short book. For those listeners who do want their lives changed by you and they're inspired as I am, I think I'm going to start upping my connectivity a bit because I'm, I might be lacking and you've inspired me. Where can they connect with you? Where can they get your books? Where can they learn more about you? Yeah, you can grab the book on Amazon if you just type in my name, Jennifer Magley, and How to Be Queen, or Jennifer Magley Queen, which is hysterical to me that that's actually how they find the book on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Subliminal messaging. (laughs) And then um, I'm very active on LinkedIn. I'm one of these people that's that's actually my platform. How many people do you ever hear say that LinkedIn is their platform? Everyone's on Instagram and Twitter, but LinkedIn is my place. Do you know why? It's because there's less trolls. (laughs) Because it's attached to their job. So people behave themselves on LinkedIn and I like it. (laughs) (laughs) It is very true. It's a very supportive space, unlike the other social medias. Yeah, it's not as it's it's a little bit of human spam, but I'll take it. You know, I, I don't mind it. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. I hope the listeners got something out of this. It's obviously a unique kind of guest. You are a unique kind of guest for this show, but it gives a a lot of great insight and mindset. So thank you for giving us some time. No, thank you all. And I'm excited to keep watching and keep learning with it for everything that you all have to offer. And as always, if you want to check out our Facebook group page, you can do so at thefyshow.com slash community. And we always appreciate those five-star reviews. They help us get great guests like we had today. And if you're interested in supporting The Fi Show, 
You can do so by checking out some of our partners over at the resources page, which can be found at thefyshow.com slash resources. And thanks for listening.